uh, having a chance to meet you, my name is Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Central City. Uh, we've been in a series called Focus. It's really based when you get an eye exam, uh, you go and you sit in front of this machine and they make these tiny little adjustments and all of a sudden you can see clearly. And so we've been asking ourselves as a community, what are some of those tiny little adjustments we can make that'll be the difference between seeing in a fog and seeing clearly? And so we've been talking through a number of what we're calling prescriptions. See what God wants us to see. So let's put that up, uh, Max. Um, we've talked about transparency. What does it mean to allow ourselves to be what does it mean to be compassionate beyond what reason would even allow? Uh, reason t- tends to get in the way of what it means to be compassionate, so we want to move beyond that. We want to be Those darn batteries. Thank you. Uh, we talk about excellence. What does it mean to bring our best in everything we do, whether we're serving, giving, whatever? Uh, excellence. We talk about evangelism. What does it mean to walk towards opportunities to share um, the love of Christ, to share our faith. And then last week, we talked about sacrifice. We talked about what it means to give until it hurts. And that when we start giving of ourselves and of our resources and of our time and of our talents and all of these things, um, that it's, it's this, this thing happens in our life. God begins to transform us. Um, now, with each of these, we've just scratched the surface. This is almost kind of like a roadmap for our community over the next year. So we're going to be covering a number of these in other ways, and, and maybe not even directly. We might not use the same language. But these are the type of things we're going to talk about as a community. We're going to open up the scriptures and spend some time unpacking that. Um, um, because to, over the series, we've just, just been scratching the surface. And with this next one, uh, that's exactly going to be the case as well. Today, we're talking about diversity. Um, we desire our church to reflect the diversity of the city and of the kingdom of God. We value people of different ethnicities, cultures, backgrounds, sharing life together. Today, um, we are going to just scratch the surface. We're going to open the conversation around diversity by talking about the race problem in America. Um, we're just going to scratch the surface. Uh, we might scratch an itch that you've been feeling uh, as if this is something you're passionate about. Uh, it, we also might just be scratching a vulnerable place in your life, so that'll be uncomfortable. And uh, we might even be poking you a little bit in those vulnerable places today. Um, so I'm going to invite you today to just be okay being uncomfortable. Is that okay? Let's just accept that ahead of time. Let's just be okay being uncomfortable, and we'll be fine uh, going forward. So um, I grew up in a small town. It's literally called Hicksville. If that's a proper noun, not an adjective, if that's what it's called, my parents decided of all places to retire in Hicksville once again. So now I get to go and visit my parents in my hometown and bump into people I went to high school with, and that's going to be just awesome. Well, I went to this small town. It's a very small town um, and, and very white, um, so not a lot of diversity. After college, I ended up moving back to that same area in northwest Ohio, and um, at one point, I, I met this girl. Not Alyssa, by the way, so don't, don't get confused. <laughs> Um, so you already know where this story's ending. Um, I met this girl, and uh, we started dating, and uh, I mean, we just, we really hit it off. I really, really liked this girl. Um, it just so happened that she was uh, half Native American, and I remember this one time, we got into this conversation. Now, once again, I, I grew up in a very conservative, white, predominantly, you know, community, and we were talking, and uh, she's Native American, and affirmative action came up in the conversation. Now... To be honest with you, I didn't even know what affirmative action was really, but I knew I wasn't supposed to like it. <laughs> I just, and, and all of it, like, I'm talking to this girl, I really liked her at the time, and, um, and, and we're talking about affirmative action. She, she had benefited from some things as a Native American with college tuitions and stuff, and something inside of me got, like, mad. Like, I was, and I, I didn't know how to deal with it then, but even looking back on it, I knew there was something unique about that. Like there was something, there was like something special going on there for me to feel the way I was feeling in the midst of this conversation around what is essentially race relations in America. Didn't work out with her. Um, funny story, the way we broke up is easily the most, this is unrelated to diversity by the way, the most dramatic way anyone has ever broken up with anyone. Do you want to hear it? I could share it another time. Uh, no, okay, so I was, 
I was a youth pastor. I'll make the short version. I was a youth pastor. I was on a mission trip, you know, just serving the Lord, serving the poor. I was on a mission trip, and uh, I was trying to get a hold of her near the end of the week because I was on my way home. Uh, we were dating. We had been dating for a couple months now, and uh, I was sure she was the one. And uh, I, she, won't, she wouldn't return my calls. I, I wasn't sure. And then she finally picked up, and she was just crying. She was crying. This is funny, though. I promise. <laughs> and... Uh, She's upset, and she won't tell me what's going on, and, and I'm a pretty strong personality, so I eventually get her to, like, tell me what's going on. Um, <laughs> she was at the airport moving to Louisiana. So, true story, not only did she feel the need to break up with me, she felt the need to move across the country. <laughs> like, that's, I'm not making that up. And uh, this is the best part. This is actually really traumatic. This was very traumatic at the time. Um, I show up to her place to pick up some of my stuff. She's already moved to Louisiana by the time I got back. I was only gone for a week, by the way. <laughs> and uh, um, on the table was a note explaining that she was moving to Louisiana. Like, that's how she wanted me to find out, was going to her place and finding it. So, yeah. Uh, so, when it, I was in college, we turned that into a movie. And um, you can probably find it online, but I don't recommend it. Now, I share this story, this conversation that I had around this issue of, of just this tension that existed because what, what I found is two things. One, this disagreement between me and her um, almost made like a cross-cultural relationship not work. We weren't, we weren't on the same page. We didn't, our values didn't line up in a way that made sense. And I couldn't see her side of the, and she couldn't see mine, and she was probably right and I was probably wrong, but... This tension prevented relationship from happening, okay? The second thing is this deep-seated tension that was rising up within me, this anguish I was feeling, this sense of anger and like, that's not how the world should work type of thing, um, I think is something we need to talk about. Why did it bother me so much? And that's what I want to begin to unpack today. So recently, I just finished a book called Divided by Faith, um, uh, and it's about the evangelical religion and the problem of race in America. It's a book that looked at specifically conservative white evangelicals considering a, a variety of surveys and doing quite a bit of surveys on their own um, on the race divide between white conservative Protestants um, as a subset of American culture and the wider black community, including, interestingly enough, black conservative Protestants, so people who believe the same thing about Jesus and Scripture. We'll talk about that a lot. He argues that if we understand sort of the nature of white evangelicals relationship to race, we'll probably understand race relations in America better. That's the whole thesis of the book. Now, before I go on, I need to address the elephant in the room. Uh, why single out, and I'm going to say this because I know it makes some of us uncomfortable, why single out conservative white evangelicals? Okay. As you will see later on, calling out uh, white evangelicals as a group is actually against everything white evangelicals tend to believe. Um, so there's nothing more annoying or even insulting to, than to talk about them as a group. So if you are feeling insulted, you are probably a white evangelical. So why do it? Uh, why talk about a group of people with such large brushstrokes instead of just dealing with people as individuals? Well, the big reason will, is going to be explained later on, but for now, I just want to say this. White evangelicals are a very clear subset in American life with similar voting patterns, ideas, worldview. They make up a large and influential group in our country, and their similarities enough are able to, we are able to talk about them really fairly accurately um, in, in large brushstrokes. So, but then you're going to say to me, but, but I'm not like them. Um, that's not fair. So here's why I'm still going to talk about them as a larger group. I was raised in many ways, and still am in many ways, a conservative, white, evangelical Protestant. I'm willing to share that. I don't know if you knew that. Um, and many of you are too. You're either raised, or you, you used to be, or you still are, or you are friends with people who are. So for me, I'm still, I'm still conservative. Um, more so in my theology than even in some of my social values, but, but I still have very conservative theological perspectives. on. I hold the Bible in high regard. I, I, I trust Jesus more than anything. I believe in the Holy Spirit's ability to change people's lives and in miracles and all this. Second, I'm very much white. So, very much white. Third, I'm fairly evangelical. I believe in sharing my faith. I believe in sharing my faith with other people. I believe that everyone's life, regardless of who they are, where they come from, that their life would be better if they knew this Jesus and the power that Jesus has to work in our lives. 
And finally, I'm pretty Protestant, even though I have a great esteem, if, if this gets into a little church dynamics, but I have a great esteem for, for some of the Orthodox beliefs and some of the Catholic beliefs but, and other Christian traditions around the world, but, but really, I was raised Protestant. Um, and knowing many of you, most of you are either conservative white Protestant or you're friends with people who are, or you grew up as someone who was, or you went to a church that was deeply informed by the subset of American conservative white Protestantism, and thus have been deeply shaped by the worldview, either directly or indirectly. And one thing we need to be aware of is that if you're white and you claim to follow Jesus, people will assume you're conservative white evangelical. And as such, it's worth knowing what this group you're, you're getting lobbed into, regardless of where you stand, is how they, they, how they deal with this issue, for better or for worse. So I'm going to talk a little bit about them, and I'm going to also talk a little about it from the perspective of me, because I'm very much, whether I like it or not, whether it's good or bad, is irrelevant, I'm a part of this group. And as such, I know that not all of this will apply to you, but I think it's wise to listen and to try to understand this worldview and the ways that it's impacting the way we see the world. Okay, so is that fair? Okay, do we be able to get past a few barriers, hopefully? Okay, so let me just say this. When we compare the worldview of white conservative evangelicals with black conservative evangelicals, there are radical differences. Here's what I mean. When you take two groups of people, one black and one white, and they agree completely on the nature of the Bible, and the nature of Jesus, who Jesus is, what it means to be saved, they, they agree theologically on most stuff, but you start asking them the, about questions about the way in which they view the world and specifically our nation and how they interpret our world and their life in this nation. They diverge greatly. So the differences aren't theological. They're the way in which we interpret the world. So let me show you. This is what we're going to spend most of the time talking about, these differences. Um, in order to become diverse, we need to understand um, some shifts that we need to make in our, in our uh, willingness to listen. So the National Opinion Research Center in Chicago did a nationally representative uh, survey regarding race relations. Uh, they asked people a simple question that looked like this. So let's put the question up. It says, on average, blacks have worse jobs, income, and housing than white people. Do you think those differences are, one, because most blacks have less inborn ability to learn, two, because most blacks just don't have the motivation or willpower to pull themselves up out of poverty, Three, because most blacks don't have the chance for education that it takes to rise out of poverty. Or four, mainly due to discrimination. Now, in this survey, you could say yes to all of them or no to all of them. So you could say yes to as many as you wanted. And this is a national survey where they asked a variety of people. And um, uh, then they grouped the responses into a couple of categories. They grouped them into white conservative Protestants. Interestingly enough, they said white conservative Protestants because they grouped white conservative, white evangelicals and white fundamentalists and they put those in the same group as white conservative Protestant because their answers regarding race were identical. So that's just an interesting perspective um, if you're aware of any of this language. So white conservative Protestants, black conservative Protestants, so they believe the exact same things biblically in regards to who Jesus is and what the Bible is, right? They just happen to be black. Um, and then other white Americans and then other black Americans. Um, before you, I show you the results of this survey, we're going to walk through each one of these, I, I want you to uh, stop and ponder how would you answer the survey? I mean, you think about it for a second. On average, blacks have worse jobs, income, and housing than white people. Do you think those differences are because most blacks have less inability to learn? Would you say yes or no? You don't have to answer out loud. Please don't. Um, two, you get awkward in here real fast. Whew. Uh, because most blacks just don't have the motivation or willpower to pull themselves out of poverty. Because most blacks don't have the chance for education that it takes to rise out of poverty. Or four, mainly due to discrimination. Now, when they asked this question, um, many uh, white conservative Protestants were actually insulted by the question to begin with. They didn't even answer. They thought that this is the wrong question, that racial inequality doesn't exist, and that the very premise of the question is wrong. So first, I wonder if that's where you are. Uh, does this mere question itself make you uncomfortable? If so, let's name that, um, and then let's lower our guard. Let's move beyond it because it's actually a very good question. It's an important question, and it's worth asking, and it's worth pondering on. So, why do you think these differences exist? Number one, is it because black people are just born inferior? Now today, this first one is a 
very socially unacceptable answer to this question. Um, and it has been for a very long time. So um, most people didn't answer it. Let's put up the graph for number one. Here's how most people answered the first one. This is how those who responded with yes. So white conservative Protestants, around 10%. Black conservative Protestants, which is very interesting, around 10%. Other white Americans, other black. Basically, around 10% across the board said it's because of a, just an innate ability um, that makes them, they're just born inferior. Um, now, even though most people didn't answer this, um, there's a couple of observations I make. First off, uh, most white evangelical Christians, I find, on a very technical sense, aren't racist. Okay, so this is this is like on a, on a, in a technical sense, do you view other people as inferior? They will say no. Um, I think we're all created in the image of God, etc. So real theology around most basic, do you view someone as inferior? But this these thoughts still exist and they still come out in a lot of ways. In fact, I heard someone say things um, that suggest this very idea. Uh, I was chatting with someone on the issues of poverty online, and they basically said, well, poverty is just going to always be the case because different people ha have different natural abilities. It's natural selection, which is an interesting perspective because if, on average, African Americans are significantly more poor, then what you're essentially saying is this, right? If you say, well, it's just natural selection, some people just tend to be worse off. So this, this idea still subtly exists in a lot of conversations and the way in which people talk about it. But thankfully, most people don't, um, so not, not in any of these uh, categories. So number two, um, is it because most blacks just don't have the motivation or willpower uh, to pull themselves up out of poverty? Now, this is a question of motivation. So think about it for yourself, honestly. But look at here's how they responded. Um, black conservative Protestants and black, other black Americans are below 50, and other white Americans and white conservative Protestants are above 50, and you begin to see this really significant shift happening, right? So even black conservatives and white conservatives, they believe the same thing, friends, about who Jesus is, how we interpret the Bible, you know, like all of this, all of these basics of theology. This is an issue of theology. They believe the same thing theologically, and yet when you ask them, is it because they just lack motivation, more likely than not, white evangelicals would say, well, people of color just lack motivation. So everyone, though, agrees on some level that there is some motivation is a factor, much more than an inborn ability. But as we talk about being diverse, we see this shift beginning to happen. Um, and here's the first trend we see amongst conservative white evangelicals. Conservative white evangelicals, like myself, um, tend to support individualism. I want to talk about this for a second. In other words, it's at the very heart of conservative white Protestants that every problem in the world can be directed back to an individual. And there is only really a problem if I can point to an individual as the, the problem. In other words, I, problems are results of individual, free will, personal sin that I need to repent of. And if there isn't a villain to point at, then there must not be a problem. This is rooted in the very birth of our nation, the idea of individual freedom, the individual of the power to choose. Um, but when you see this segment of the population look at the problem, including the race problem, they will assume it must fall on the individual. So that's actually um, why that graph makes sense. It's an issue of motivation. Because if there's a problem, race problem, then it must be some individual problem that someone is making bad decisions. Um, so individualism, prefer when you prefer not to think of people in groups, but as in individuals. So in this survey, a non-denominational evangelical man was uncomfortable with talking about any group as a group, um, and as instead wanted to talk about groups as individuals. This is actually what he said when he was engaged in this kind of survey. He says, yeah, it groups some, and now you've got to think of them as a group and judge them as a group instead of individually. I prefer looking at individuals. We see this kind of language a lot in the white evangelical world. Now, let's just talk about it based on individuals. I don't want to talk about it as a systemic, bigger issue. So here's what uh, Divided by Faith talks about it. Put up the next quote. It says, uh, common terms used to describe the race problem were prejudice, bigotry, anger, ignorance, lack of respect, fear of each other, poor communication, individuals hating or being angry at each other, and lacking Christ-like love for one another. Now, all of these play into the race problem, don't they? But I want you to think about this. Step back for a second. What do all of these this is what, how white evangelicals typically answer the race problem. What do they all have in common? 
they all point towards an individual. In other words, the race problem in America is because there are people who are racist. And if they would just change their hearts and their minds, then we wouldn't have a race problem. That's the white, the typical large brushstroke white evangelical perspective. And think about this as well. How many of these words have anything to do with the structural issues of racism? The way in which we organize ourselves and the way in which our society runs and our government runs. Do any of these actually address structural issues? Well, that's to say, white conservative Protestants tend to view the race issue or any problem really as an individual matter. It's an issue of individual people and the way that individual people interact with other individual people. And to some degree, I'm not disagreeing with that. I think that is one of the problems of race in America is the way individuals treat other individuals and the way we talk to one another. And that needs to change. So I don't disagree, but I do disagree with what comes next. Those in this group tend to assume that's the only way to address this problem. So consider question number uh, three. Question number three says, because most blacks don't have the chance for education that it takes to rise out of poverty. Um, so once again, they think about this for a second. How would you answer this? Is it, would you say, yes, that's part of the reason why there's racial inequality? Or is that no, not, not doesn't play a part? Does racial inequality exist beyond the individual level and into the way in which we structure our schools and our neighborhoods? Well, do you want to see how, uh, how people across the nation answered this? Here's, here's the responses. So we see this shift happening, right? Now all of a sudden, black conservative Protestants are saying above 50%, yeah, the race problem is because in part the way in which we structure our schools. And white conservative Protestants, for the first time in the minority here, say only 30% of them say, yeah, that's part of the problem. Other white Americans and other black Americans as well as black conservative Protestants, once again, these people believe the same thing. Right? This is really important for us to think about it. This isn't a theological issue. This is the way in which we interpret the world. White conservative Protestants are saying, no, that's not the problem here. One of the issues with um, this particular segment of the population from which I'm a part of and I've come out of is that not only do we value individualism, but we are called, and this is all language out of Divided by Faith, the book, we, are, uh, we support anti-structuralism. In other words, not only do we think it's an individual issue, but we are adamantly opposed that the problem could be because of the way in which our government is structured, the way in which our community is structured. We're, we're, the idea that our nation could do something wrong, it's, you might as well say Jesus is doing something wrong. We're anti-structuralism. The problem is not the government. You see this all the time, right? It's not the government's job to do X, Y, Z. This is a phrase that I'll heard. Um, it's not the government's job. We just need to do a better job of caring for the people in our particular community. Have you, have you heard phrases like this before? Well, it's at the heart of a comment like this. The, the idea is that they're anti-structuralism, that, that it isn't a lack of education. It's just a lack of motivation. That the issues of justice, it's not an issue of justice. or It's just an issue of individual people making poor decisions. And to fix it, we need individual people to repent and change their behavior, and then things would be different. Now, this is seen even more so in the last question. Racial inequality exists because is it mainly due to discrimination? So pause, uh, before you put it up, pause. How would you answer that? Is racial inequality in America due mainly to discrimination? Well, let's see how uh, America answered it. Okay. Once again, black conservative Protestants, vast majority, over 70%, close to 80% are saying, yeah, racial inequality exists because of discrimination. White conservative Protestants and other white Americans, even less so, are saying, no, that's not the problem. A lot of things happen because of this. Can, can relationships exist when one group of people are saying over here, hey, you know what, um, people like me tend to be worse off because of discrimination, and people who aren't like them are over here saying, no, it's not. Can, can, right, so there becomes a breakdown in not only how we view the world, but in our ability to enter into relationship with someone on mutual grounds. Now these statistics, along with many other surveys and, and conversations, led the writers of Divided by Faith to suggest 
that white evangelical Protestant Christians um, worldview on race is rooted in a couple of uh, core values, three specifically. They accept and support, and I talked about two of these already. Let's bring up the next one. Individualism, relationalism, and anti-structuralism. And uh, I want to apologize for such an academic talk today, but I'm not going to. So individualism, once again, this idea that every problem points back to an individual. Relationalism is this idea that racial reconciliation can only happen on an individual level. So racial reconciliation is me befriending someone who isn't white. That's the only racial reconciliation I'm interested in. I don't want to change anything in the way in which we organize ourselves as a society. Right? This is a high value for white evangelical Protestants. And then anti-structuralism, this idea that, that the problems in the world specifically related to race um, are going to be fixed by individuals repenting and relationships being mended and have nothing to do with the way in which we structure ourselves. Now, I've seen these values lived out over and over again in ways uh, that have shaped the way people understand God and salvation. Never mind that most people uh, at the time when the Bible was written never talk about God repenting of sins as individuals. It's almost always as an entire group of people, and yet we are very uncomfortable with this idea that we could repent as a people and not just as individuals. Let me just say biblically that that's the primary call to repentance is not individuals but as people. But we're so uncomfortable being identified with other groups because of our value of individualism that we would never want to repent as a group of people. So while these values aren't inherently evil, um, they're not entirely biblical either. So let me show you what I mean. I want to take these values and I want to try to use them to solve a problem we see in the Old Testament. One of the great stories in the Old Testament is the story of um, the people of Israel living in slavery being delivered out of slavery. This story has been so formative, it became a very central part of black liberation theology. Black liberation theology was in response to conservative Christian theology that suggested that black people should be slaves. So they taught this for a long period of time in our country. Don't know if you knew that. And so black liberation theology says, maybe God doesn't want us to be slaves. And look at the story of Moses and the Exodus, and like maybe God wants to deliver us out of slavery. So this story became very formative to black the, uh, liberation theology. And I want to consider this story. Um, and if you're not familiar with the Exodus story, there's a lot of great movies. The book version's pretty good, too. But I want to consider this story through this, these lenses. As compelling, as attractive as some of these lenses are, how would we deal with the slavery problem in Egypt if we operated primarily out of this. So I want you to think with me, imagine that you, there's an Egyptian who's uh, talking with a, uh, an Israelite slave in Egypt during the time of the Exodus. So you have this Egyptian and you have this slave, and the slave is complaining about the fact that they are, in fact, a slave. And so the Egyptian looks at the problem like a conservative white Protestant. So the first is individualism. So let's say that the slave says to this Egyptian, I can't believe I'm a slave. I work all day for barely enough to live on, and there's no hope for anything better. Right? Desperation. Well, imagine the Egyptian is ignoring, uh, the, uh, ignoring the slave, might say, ignoring the fact that there are very clear structures in place that are making them a slave. And the Egyptian just simply says, well, if you'd like, I'd be willing to uh, coach you a little and help you learn better financial practices and better work ethic, and, uh, and then you'll be able to advance more quickly as a slave. Dealing with it on an individual level, the problem isn't that you're a slave. The problem is that, you know, you just you, there's some things we could tweak to help you be a better slave. Or imagine that he's looking through it through a relational lens. He might say, and this actually would be really beautiful. Egyptian might say to the to the Israelite slave, um, you know what? I'm so sorry. This just really stinks. Um, if you want, why don't you come over and. and you know, you and your family come over for dinner um, after work. And you can just sit with us and be in a relationship. In other words, he's he going to solve this problem on a relational level, which is, it kind of would be kind of beautiful, but does nothing to change the structures that keep this Israelite a slave. So what if the slave pushes and he says, well, well why don't you lobby and advocate and try to change the way this country works? And if he's feeling especially anti-structural, he will maybe say something like this. Well, to be fair, Israelite, we all have it hard. I have to do things all the time I don't want to do. And it doesn't always work out well for me. And I don't always have enough money to get stuff done. And that's just life. That's how it works. 
I don't know what you expect to do about it. It's just life is hard. Now, as honest, as sincere, and even as kind as the Egyptian might be in these imaginary scenarios, his responses do nothing to change the status of the slave. Thankfully, this is not how the story goes. God doesn't engage in sympathetic conversations. God delivers them. And he delivers them by sending someone to address the person in charge and saying, let my people go. He removes them from an evil structure and gives them a new way of living. God sends them a leader to go to the leader of that country and deal with the very structure that is keeping them captive. That's what God does. Can you see how this story, the story of the Exodus became so formative for the black community and why it makes us, when we are sympathetic and maybe just apolitical or even unengaged as white conservative Protestants, it makes us maybe so very uncomfortable. Here's how the South African pastor and bishop Peter Story said it. I think this explains it rather well. Um, American preachers have a task more difficult perhaps than those faced by us under South Africa's apartheid or Christians under communism. We had obvious evils to engage. It's much easier to engage evil if you can point to someone. We had obvious evils to engage. You have to unwrap your culture from years of red, white, and blue myth. That alone makes us uncomfortable. You have to expose and confront the disconnection between the kindness, compassion, and caring of most American people and the ruthless way American power is experienced directly and indirectly by the poor of the earth. Next slide. You have to help good people see how they have let their institutions do their sinning for them. This is not easy among people who really believe that their country does nothing but good. But it is necessary not only for their future, but for us all. I have the uh, um, opportunity growing up in a predominantly white environment to be um, most often in rooms with other white men. Um, growing up in the church and being in church leadership, the United Methodist Church is diverse when it comes to gender, but not nearly diverse when it comes to uh, ethnicity or culture. And so uh, predominantly in rooms, in leadership rooms with predominantly white people and often in other environments with a lot of men, which is why this season of my life is so wonderful. Because now, through our work with Celebrate One, it is not uncommon for me to be the only white male in the room. And uh, I have some of my friends here today who, uh, who are part of that. And um, um, in fact, I'm sometimes the only male in the room because not nearly as many men are engaged around uh, leadership in infant mortality, which is maybe something we should work on. But uh, usually the only male, and if I'm not the only male, I'm the only white male engaged in issues because of our work as a church with Celebrate One. So I end up in all these meetings. And because of that, um, infant mortality is in many ways uh, uh, one of these issues that we see race being played out. In fact, I heard a doctor say once that infant mortality, the rate at which children die before the age of one, is, a, uh, is like the canary in the mine. Have you, have you heard this? The canary in the mine. They put a canary in the mine because the canary would die before humans. Um, so it was more vulnerable, and so you could tell whether there was poisonous gases or you know, these types of things. Infant mortality is the canary in the mine. Infant mortality is, if you want to know how the city or community is doing, look at the infant mortality rates because when there are problems, children are the first to suffer. I would say not only is infant mortality uh, the canary in the mine when it comes to just the status of our community, but when it comes to race relations. So one of the things you'll find is that um, uh, black children die at a much more alarming rate than white children in the city of Columbus. And that, that's a red flag. That's, okay, there is something going on here that is a problem. And so we've been able to, I've just been able to learn and to listen and engage in conversations with a couple of people. And um, um, we're going to actually invite them to come up and have some conversations. And uh, so we have Raquel and Tanika. These are uh, some of the coordinators for Celebrate One. And we're going to do a little interview with them. We're going to talk about infant mortality and our work with Celebrate One. And then we're going to talk a little bit about race relations. So, yeah. We're even going to give you a mic. Oh, yeah. I'm loud, though. <laughs> well, you can just hold it away, then. Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. I love this church. I love everything that you're doing. 
so happy. Oh, wait, were you supposed to ask me for introduction first? Sorry, I might be going out of order. You have a mic, you can Give do me the mic, you. it's a problem. You can do whatever you want. We'll give you your own. I think it, it checks. I don't know if it's on. I think it might be on. Is it it's on? also very loud. Yeah. Yeah, well, why don't you introduce yourselves? Tell us who you are. Tell us a little bit what you do at Celebrate One, why you're passionate about this work, um, and we'll go from there. Okay, so I'm Tanika Price, and I'm a program manager for the community health workers at Celebrate One, and the community health workers are the arms and legs of Celebrate One. They go out and find the most vulnerable women um, who need to be connected to the services, who are um, in jeopardy of their babies dying before their first birthday. And I'm very passionate about the work. Um, I have my twins here, stand-up twins. They were born oh, two pounds. <laughs> That's Makaya and Kiara. They were born two pounds, three ounces um, at 26 weeks. They're supposed to be 40 weeks, so they were a little over half. And they're 11, about to be 12 now. And it was really the village that helped get me through that. And I had recently graduated from law school, got divorced, and was living in poverty in the Linden area with a law degree. Um, unemployed because I couldn't pass the bar exam when I found myself pregnant with them. Um, so I really lived this kind of oxymoronic life where I had this education and privilege, but it really didn't trickle down to dollars and cents for me um, because the opportunities weren't afforded for me for whatever reason. So when I had them, I was a walking stereotype. I lived in Linden, which has the highest infant mortality rate in the city. I, I did not have a partner. They were twins. I was over 30, and I was overweight. So I was basically a billboard for both infant mortality and, unfortunately, maternal mortality. So black women do die at a higher rate than white women during and after childbirth. So that's what brought me into this work, to help other people who are in similar situations get through and find the tools that they need to be successful. Awesome. So, okay, so it is on. Well, my name is Raquel Fuentes, and um, I joined Celebrate One about two years now. The work found me. Uh, my background, I've always been interested in uh, law and immigration, and um, that was my trajectory. I, went, I came to Columbus because I went to Denison, and after graduating Denison, I was um, doing some work on the south side with nonprofit and um, community development. From there, infant mortality, um, was introduced and a lot of the work and the concepts of uh, my passion for be becoming a crusader of justice is my favorite line. Um, I was able to really walk, talk and advocate and help with policy changes for the community and yet I was still um, addressing infant mortality. When it comes to infant mortality, it's very interesting the way we talk about it because it is a, it, it's a huge um, example of the racism that exists today and the racism that we do not like talking about. So when I talk about it, I talk numbers because people believe numbers before they believe um, concepts of uh, maybe ideas or things that they're just not familiar because they don't have to experience it. So um, it's very interesting work, but uh, the most interesting aspect of it, I think, is just the amount of advocacy we still need for all walks of life. So tell us a little about, you, 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 you hinted at the racial disparity we talked about a little bit. You, you say you have some numbers. Talk to us a little bit about um, what are some of the rates in regards to raci the racial disparity amongst infant mortality and some of your thoughts on, on that. Just help us understand a little bit, either one of you. So, um, so I'll give examples first before we go into it. A black woman with a PhD, a pregnant black woman with a PhD is three times more likely to lose her child to infant mortality than that of a white woman with less than high school education here in Franklin County. So I, um, I'm Puerto Rican and Guatemalan. In college, I got a chance to go to Guatemala and meet my father, who was deported from the United States when I was two. And I'm in Guatemala in this village. There's no running water. Uh, I'm an I never felt so American until I left America. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm there, and I'm like, wow, this is so interesting. This is amazing. This is my own generation. And, and yet, um, they had a lot less resources than what we're used to. And what um, they did not have is they do not have an infant mortality issue there. And yet, they have way less um, supplies and resources and quality of life compared to us. Yet here in Franklin County, this great, amazing place to be, um, we have a huge infant mortality rate. So what is that, what's, what story is being told there? What issues are on the rise? So um, when we look at racial disparities in, in the resources, there, there's a huge um, conflict. If, if a black child here is three times more likely to, li to die, there's a mortality than that of a white child. I actually have some uh, briefs and stuff that I'll put together while Tanika's talking, and I'll have it go around. 
There is a um, video out online that I would recommend you to watch called Dying While Black. And it's about Harlem, New York City, African-American mothers there 12 times more likely to die than a white woman, either during or after childbirth. That, that should just make your heart leap out your chest. Mm. Um, and it documents a couple of the women who passed before and after childbirth. And the things we don't talk about um, that I wanted to bring up today are just our values and our differences. I think we need to start realizing that it's okay that we're different. Like y'all sung a song that we sang at our church and we was over there clapping and swaying. Y'all wasn't clapping, but it's okay. <laughs> it was okay you that we clapped you, and y'all didn't clap. You can't get white people to clap. I see, I see. Except for the one white person in the room who can't clap. Okay. They love to clap. <laughs> But I just thought that was such a great example of how we might enjoy the same song. We sang it the black way, y'all sang it the white way. It's okay, we still sang the song. And Literally until, with the banjo, I don't know with if the it could be The banjo white. was pretty cool. Yeah, but yeah. see, okay, at our church, you gotta have drums. Like, we'll have a seven-year-old on the drums. You know, you don't have to have no experience, just get on the drum, boom, 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 jump, boom, boom, boom. So when y'all didn't have no drums, I was like, uh, how are we going to sing without drums? So we, we had do, to clap. We do have drums, for the record. Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 we do. We, right. we usually have drums. Okay. Yeah, no. But we have to be Mental okay with those Next differences. Come, we really do. We have to be okay with those differences. And I think that's where we're getting stalled out. We judge. So I come in, and I don't see drums, and I'm like, they don't know how to have praise and worship because they don't have drums. Right? You see us clapping, and you say, oh. They always so emotional, they gotta clap, right? <laughs> That's where we get tripped up, It's when we put that judgment piece. Instead of just saying we're different. When I teach about diversity, the first thing I say is, it is absolutely normal to be drawn to people like you. They've even done studies that suggest that you're attracted to your partner because there's something in there. I was looking at this couple right here. There's something in their face that looks similar. And their study suggests that you're attracted. Yeah, you right there. I was looking at y'all and I said, I'm gonna use them as my example. There's something in your faces that looks similar. And they say that you're attracted to people that have symmetry and that reflect something that you see in yourself. So I think we have to be okay with saying, I'm comfortable with my people. But we don't stop there. We don't stop at being comfortable. We hedge towards what Joe was talking about. I felt like after he got done, there was nothing left to say because he really did an excellent job of saying what needed to be said. But we have to be comfortable with getting outside of our comfort zone because that's where change is going to happen systemically. We do have to do those things on an individual level. One thing we didn't do in America that South Africa did, they did truth and reconciliation sessions. They had sessions where people who killed African Americans, well, they weren't African Americans, but South Africaners, they came and apologized to their family. They came and said, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. You have to have that level of culpability and that level of admission. And Bill Clinton saying, I'm sorry for slavery, is the closest that African Americans have ever gotten to an apology for slavery in America. It's never happened. Mm -hmm. It's never happened. And so how can you move forward without that? Yeah, the way in, in the, the book I recommended, um, the way in which they talk about the way in which from slavery to segregation and things like that, the way in which um, some of the real racism in our country changed, it happened so slowly and so progressively. There wasn't a stark, we're wrong, we're not going to do this anymore. It was like a constant negotiation, how racist can we be and still be allowed to do it, all the way up till basically a generation ago and probably ongoing. Um, so one of the things that one of you said that white people, for a variety of reasons, maybe not directly taught, but maybe indirectly taught, are, are we don't talk about race. And maybe it's one of the reasons because uh, we just assume white culture is American culture. Um, but then people, more black families, you have to address race and talk about it. So um, how have you seen this played out in your life? Um, what do you think this makes, uh, why do you, what, how do you think this makes race conversations across different cultures difficult between whites and non-whites? Any thoughts? So um, I think we were going back, my mom gave me that quote when I was growing up, I think I was like 11 or 12 years old and we were having a discussion around race and it's, it's impacted my life since, but she said, white people, and no, this is very uh, transparent, y'all, 
But white people are raised to never bring up race so that they don't seem racist. And black people are raised to never forget it because of the impact. So see, hearing that and watching it play out now, even within the work, it's very true. When you're in a room full of um, the same, I, like I said, I went to Denison. It's very white there. I was one of only. And to have those conversations in that sense, and now where I'm at, where I have the, um, the, the language and the tools to say that we still do live in a racist time and age, people don't want to hear that. It's uncomfortable. They don't want to talk about these things because it's not, if it doesn't impact you directly, then kind of like, I don't want to get involved, or if I'm associated with this, my neighbors may not invite me to their cookouts anymore, or I might not have that same network of friends because it's, it's an uncomfortable conversation. But yet, when I have to go, I have a job to, to day and age because there is a huge infant mortality rate and a huge racial disparity. So it's hard to say that it doesn't exist when I have to see these numbers every single day. So I don't mind being the advocate or the person that starts that uncomfortable conversation. But what I do need is the buy-in from the audience, the buy-in from the people that I'm engaging, just the willingness to hear it out, learn, and then see it. And then what do we do from there? We, advocacy is number one, awareness, having, having those conversations, being that single face and uh, maybe a a community that doesn't want to talk about it and saying, no, we're going to talk about this. This is real. I heard it at church or um, these uh, numbers do exist. So, I think for me, um, the Bible says my people perish for lack of knowledge. And I think the first thing that we as Americans have to realize is that much of our history is not true. Much of what we were taught in school is not true. Um, there's an African proverb that says, until the lion writes their history, Tales of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So we have to start by realizing that the way that America was shaped, the way that we've been taught, has been for a specific purpose. That, that may be hard for you to hear, but there's a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me that I recommend for everybody. They tell you that Christopher Columbus, in large part, may be a myth or a fable. We don't really know what he looks like, and our city was named after him. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> so there is a lot that we have to unpack and unlearn, and we perish because we don't know. What we've been taught as truth is actually perspective. It's not truth. Yeah. It is perspective. I had a teacher who told me, don't major in Africana studies. Nobody will respect that. So I chose another major. Guess what? That wasn't truth. That was his perspective. And I took it as truth and made decisions based on that. That's what happens every day with us. People's perspectives become our truth. So until we can unpack that and say that maybe what we're learning about each other is not true, maybe what we've learned about the Muslim culture is not true, maybe what we've learned about Hispanics is not true, until we can unpack that, if we continue to let media teach us about each other, the divide is only going to get wider and wider and wider. I just want to add to that. So that truth and, and being able to unpack it and acknowledging and saying this is an issue that exists, one, that's, that's going to help us get jumpstart into this. But um, when it comes to, like, you think about um, housing, and we have a huge housing issue here. If you go to an eviction court on a, any day of the week, Monday through Friday, you'll see that, um, one, a pregnant woman that's homeless is three times uh, or two times more likely to face uh, prematurity. Prematurity is one of our leading causes to uh, infant mortality. So if you go to eviction court Monday through Friday and you see um, just the population that's being serviced there for eviction court, it's predominantly black women, single household led black women. So then you look at the homeless shelter. Well, what's the uh, largest demographics is being serviced in the homeless shelter? Single parent black women, many of them pregnant or um, multiple children. So these numbers are all playing a part. It's a systematic issue. It's, um, it's, it's the implicit bias that we face or we're taught and, and we're raised around to believe to be concepts that are not true, but we were raised that way, so we think it is, so it is. So um, institutional racism is a huge, huge, huge piece to take on, but it does exist. And we see it played out in our services. We see it played out with our, our numbers, our infant mortality numbers. I've noticed um, in this, uh, I noticed as a white male, um, it might be a, a white people thing. I think it's definitely a male thing. So it might not be even race. We don't like to be engaged in conversations we can't control. So I don't, I don't want to have a conversation if, if, I, if, if I don't have the ultimate say, or if I don't get to decide where it ends, or I don't get to decide the, have you, like, 
what are your thoughts on that? And it's just as I'm listening, that's one of the things that comes to mind is like we, as a as a male and probably as a white male, I'm uncomfortable or I can be uncomfortable being in a conversation that I can't control and that I don't get to say what the right answer is at the end. Have you experienced that? Oh, absolutely. I think this plays itself out in in education all the time. I mean, there was times where I would be talking to a professor and a white student would walk up and the professor would say, "Can I help you?" or "Yes," like I wasn't talking to the professor. There's been times when I have my hand raised and you know they look right over you. I had a connector say this the other day that she was in school, she raises her hand and it's like the professor's looking for any white person because they don't want to call on that person. This happens every single day. And these are the microaggressions. We were all together, uh, the connectors, we were going downtown and we experienced something and one of the connectors said microaggressions. The little things, you know a car full of white people wouldn't be treated the way a car full of black people is treated on the street. Like you don't see that, but that's what we live with every single day. And we have to live with knowing that if we were white, we'd be treated differently. That is painful. I mean, I have more education than most of the people that walk up to me, and I still have to deal with being thought as of less than every single day. Some of my education is about trying to prove that I'm enough. But I had to look in the mirror and tell myself, you are enough, because I can't afford to get any more degrees after this doctorate. (laughs) (laughs) My Uh, husband said, that's it. You are enough, and that, that's enough, yeah. <laughs> we have to tell ourselves that we are enough. So that, some of that is about how white culture is set up, because white culture is normative. So what's normal, that's why white people don't have to talk about race, because the default race is white. So everybody else has to adjust and acclimate themselves to the white culture, but the white culture rarely has to adjust themselves to anybody. So we have connectors that are only, we only have, what, three white connectors, and they came to us once talking about how they felt about being white and being silenced in the class. And their, you know, their views not being taken seriously. And I had to say, this is how black people feel every single day. I'm sorry that you're experiencing this, Mm -hmm. but this is a safe place for black people because it is majority black. And so how you feel is how we feel most of the time. Yeah, um, uh, lost my question I was gonna ask next. Um, so we talked a little bit about how we view, uh, we tend to view the issue of race on an individual problem instead of as a structural problem, um, an issue of individuals instead of the way in which our government or society is structured. Um, from my experience, this is a pretty common perspective amongst white Christians. Um, how does it make you feel and what would you say to help someone like see it differently? I don't know if you have enough context from the, the sermon to respond to that, but. Do you see, I mean, is it just an individual issue? I mean, certainly it is, but how do I move from just viewing it as like, oh, me and another person have to get along better, that's what will fix the race problem, to saying, no, there are probably issues happening in the way in which we structure ourselves as a society that need to be changed too. Well, I have to say that um, the individual conversation is a conversation that's being had on a black side too. My parents told me that I had to be two times better than any white student in the class to get ahead. They told me that when I was four or five years old. I've always been a straight A student, always been an excellent student because I knew that's what it took to be successful. Yet if you looked at my resume on paper, I have not been so successful. So it, it, it took a lot more than that. The social elements, the social things that I, I went to Wellington and Upper Arlington, but all the black students that were there were there on scholarship. We had to take the CODA bus. I graduated in 1992, so this wasn't the 60s, but it felt like it. We took the <laughs> CODA bus to school every day and every day we were late. And the CODA bus dropped us off in the back of the school on Fissinger rather than the front of the school and re-road. So we had to walk through the kitchen. I'm, not, I'm, I'm telling you what I experienced. We walked through the kitchen every single day to get to our classrooms, kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade. And every single day we were late. So imagine how that played on our psyches. Out of the six people that I graduated with, four of us in my class and three, two in the class above me, only one of us, that was me, graduated from college. And it took me five years. Everybody else dropped out. But we went to the best school in Columbus. That tells you a little bit about how those social elements impact African Americans in a different way than they're impacting the white students. I think that goes back to kind of what I was saying. It's so much easier to fix a problem if we can point to a villain 
But like even in that simple scenario, it's like who do you blame? Who's the bad person? Is it the bus driver? Is it the bus route? Is it the school? Like it's, it becomes very messy, and it's like how do you know? I don't know. I don't know. I I don't know how to fix it, so I'm not going to engage it. And so that becomes really tricky. Do you have any? When she, uh, when Tanika was giving her example, I just thought it was so interesting when she said that her parents at four years old, because I was taught the same thing as, you know, if your adjective doesn't make sense with your noun, they will think you are less than your Latina women. We're on the bottom when it comes to the totem pole of pay rate. So just even that concept makes me know that I have to come into any setting just prepared and, and ready to go, because if not one bad move, and that'll just sum up all the stereotypes or all the assumptions that a group can have for me. And, and that pressure is real. So if you think about it as what it means to be black in America, it's a big trauma. It, to be more black here in America, it's a huge trauma. And if we say that it does not exist, either one, we're not black, so that's why we're saying that statement, or two, we're afraid of, the, of how much work it would take to solve that if we acknowledged it. Yeah. So just thinking about it in that sense, it, 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 it starts like the conversations you have at home. Um, Political, our social political, uh, political climate right now is very interesting. If you think about the conversations you have during um, the election time, during Thanksgiving dinner, mom, you voted for Trump. Uh, no, that's not cool, mom. You know, let's have this conversation. <laughs> but and I, ha I saw a lot of that happening with my friends in um, in their walks of life and, and their parents and their families being divided because they, uh, you know, you're associated to something, or if you believe in, in this person's beliefs, then what does that say about you? Or you know, if you don't do anything, then you're also agreeing with it. So. Somebody told me once that a barometer to check yourself is when is the last time a, a person that wasn't your color or your race or your ethnicity walked into your home and was not there to serve you. Mm. So I'm not talking about the electrician who came to fix your, your electricity or the person who came to fix your, clean your carpet. I'm talking about when was the last time you invited someone into your home who didn't look like you? And I think that's stark. I mean, even for me, for Raquel, for all of us, that is a real, a real great barometer on where we are with people who don't look like us. When you all want to come over for dinner? Oh, I'm, a, I'm there. It depends on what you're cooking, though, because... I'll, I'll bring the rice and beans. Y'all yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Let's give it. You know we have conversations about how white people like the stuff they put in their macaroni and cheese and their potato salad. We, we talk about those things. Yeah? So, uh, I'm very... I want, I'm going to avoid asking a follow-up question to the mac and cheese. So I'm very curious. We have a mac and cheese uh, uh, chef here, so you might uh -oh. want to have to ask. Uh... I need another ingredients. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, um, so last question, because um, we're going to bring this service to a close. And I want to um, make sure anybody who has any questions in the audience is able to ask. Is that okay, too? Sure. sure. I, I don't wasn't like on the agenda. control of a conversation. Ah, at least you admitted it. You're aware. Fun fact, Tanika is actually a famous rapper artist outside of here, so she will take over any mic. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, actually, really, yeah. Why didn't Sorry. we schedule I, I didn't mean to put her on the... <laughs> um, well, we'll hold on to the last question. Uh, do we have any questions? I'll give a little context very quickly about what I passed around. So we create profiles for all of the eight neighborhoods that we're involved, that we um, engage. So Franklinton, it's um, very, very close to here. We're in Grandview, Franklinton, but the experience for both of these communities are um, very, very different in the outcomes. Um, this that I passed around is just the profile in Franklinton, and it kind of just shows you um, what your health outcome and, and the trajectories uh, for your life tend to be if you're born into Franklinton. Well the original Franklinton, not the newer version that's developing, but yeah. West side. We can get there. more. There, there's PDF as well yeah. online we can send out, yeah. So this, Franklinton's where we, where we predominantly work in regards to infant mortality. We actually have some really exciting things in the works that I'm not gonna tell you today, but we'll share in the future and um, uh, around some of that work, and so that'll be really fun. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think the environment that I didn't feel silenced in was at St. Francis de Sales. I went there for two years before I was drafted into Wellington. It was like a draft because I didn't have a choice to go. My parents were like, you're going. Um, but at the sales, I think because with Catholicism, they're like, we need everybody at the table. And they are very overt about inclusion and diversity, and they tackle it head on. 
And I still keep in touch with my teachers from DeSales to this day. They made that great of an impact on my life. Um, they put service first. So really it's all about serving the community. It doesn't matter what that community looks like. DeSales is really involved in getting out of the walls, which is very different than Wellington or Vassar where I went to college. It's like they have the walls erected to keep people in and keep the community out. But at DeSales, they're very integrated into their community and I think that's what it takes. It takes the admission that there's a problem and then the commitment to do something about the problem. And I think the diocese has that on lock. I think they're doing a great job. And I'll add and then you can follow up because <laughs> she's so too excited. We, so even if we start with just um, being born too smart, too soon, prematurity, it, as a black woman, your access to care, the opportunity, um, why, do, why is this population using the emergency room or why are they only going when it's really bad? Well, they haven't had a good conversation with the last time they went to doctors or the culture, they were treated funny. So now you're subjected to that pressure. You don't want to go. You don't want to be seen as this, or you had a bad experience, and, and that's the you know that's how your village has communicated to one another. We don't go because of X, Y, and Z, or we can't trust our clinicians and, and our physicians because we don't know their, their impact on us or their truest intention. I think um, if you look at people in poverty like across the world, this is pretty much standard that they make choices um, that are adverse to their best interests. So I don't think that's particular to the African-American community, that's, that is a symptom of living in poverty. Um, we know now uh, through um, what we've seen from the tobacco industry when they were sued that they targeted minorities, they targeted the youth, um, they targeted the inner city, right? So it's not surprising that we have larger number of people who smoke there. And then choices and access. You know, it's like, what do you have to do? What are your options? How do you, you know, just that whole piece of access um, and choices is so limited when you live in communities um, that are impoverished that I think that plays a lot into those decisions. Um, and then there's racism. Racism is not listed, but if I'm dealing with those daily microaggressions, um, you know, I need to take a breath. I have never learned meditation because they didn't teach that at my elementary school, right? They're teaching it at my son's elementary school at Columbus Montessori, but they didn't teach that at my elementary school, so I don't know that that's a way to deal with stress. But I do know when I smoke, I feel better. Possibly because of the same techniques that come with meditation, because I'm inhaling and I'm exhaling. I'm going outside. I'm separating myself from the group. I'm taking time for myself. See, all the things that we could have taught somebody to do in meditation, we didn't teach them, so the cigarette industry got them and taught them the same things. So we really have to hit this. That's what I'm saying. It's about education. It's about access. It's about what you're exposed to. That's not what we see. We just see the individual making that choice. So um, on the back of one of your uh, sheets of paper is information about the first birthday. We've been billing this as a, just a fun way to volunteer. Um, as you can see, this work, um, while it's a birthday party and actually will be a lot of fun, it's, it's a part of a much bigger strategy around uh, addressing issues of infant mortality and ultimately getting families who come to the first birthday uh, connected to some really great resources that are going to be present that day. So if you haven't signed up online, you can sign up on paper right now. Um, so we have it right there. You, you could fill out the front with your, your name and contact information if we don't have it already, and you can sign up for a specific spot to serve at the first birthday, which is next week on Sunday. And so we're really excited about that. Um, I'm going to end the conversation here. I know you all might need to get somewhere. Um, we do have a few connectors in the room. So... Uh, um, and I don't know if they're sticking around, but I'm sure if they are, they'd you guys love can it. stand up. My connectors came today. I'm so proud of them. Yeah. This is Angela and Miriam. Yeah, so proud of you guys. Thank you for being here. And uh, um, so thanks so much for uh, uh, for coming and for sharing your heart. You guys, thanks them real quick, and then we'll thank we'll you. Close. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, and thank you guys for being here for the diversity conversation. That says a lot about you. Um, so let's. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll be done. Let's pray. 
God, we come before you, and we thank you for the conversation. Um, we ask that you would just come and work within our hearts, especially those areas that are feeling a little on edge um, as things um, that are so uh, central to who we are maybe getting challenged or pricked. Um, we'd ask that you would just con continue to give us a compassionate heart and transparency. And, um, uh, Lord, as you, as you taught through your St. James, that we would be slow to speak and quick to listen, um, and that we would um, be willing to sit and understand other people's perspective. Um, in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks so much for coming, everyone. Thank you. There's also some more Celebrate One resources up here if you want to learn more. Yeah, I'll leave some. Thank you. Thanks so much.